God, we thank you. Uh, I thank you for the work you're doing in the Carroll family. Uh, I thank you for uh, being a great God who uh, can not only heal uh, physical issues in, in the lives of, of, of individuals and can not only perform amazing um, what well, seems like miracles where you can feed multitudes and where you can walk on water and um, those things are great, but I'm thankful for that greater great that, that, that you revealed to us on Sunday that, uh, that you rule in the hearts of men, uh, that you can actually change the heart of an individual to overflow with love and with kindness and with respect and that, that in doing so that you can put away in, in that same individual anger and pride and discontentment and uh, impatience. God, I'm so thankful. Uh, Anytime I see the things that you're doing in other people's lives, I just know it's a time for this whole body. Since our story is the story of a people, it's a time for us to all worship and praise you. God, I pray that we would continue in that tonight as we do that, uh, looking at the lives of Jacob and Esau and praising you for for what you do and, and how you are the same God now as you were then and uh, the the beautiful things that we can learn uh, about that as we engage your scriptures. God, we love you and praise you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up to Genesis 25. Uh, Last week, we looked at God answering a prayer, but maybe not in the way that we would have liked him to answer it uh, had we orchestrated the thing ourselves. And what we came to was we realized that uh, God makes decisions that we disagree with. And that doesn't make him less God. It shows our humanity and how much we are absolutely not God. And, uh, but that, re- that is no doubt a reality, that God will make decisions that we don't agree with. And we see Rebecca, a first-time mommy, in anguish and pain over these twins that are struggling within her. And so um, she's in this anguish and she's in this pain, and, and she goes to God. And she says, God, uh, what, what's going on here? If, this, if it is thus, why do I live? And God gives her some words to comfort her. And for those who were here last week, how did God comfort her? Yeah, by telling her his plan. What, all, what were some of the details of the plan that he shared? Yeah, there's two nations within your womb, and they're struggling. One will be stronger than the other, and the, the older will serve the younger. The God of nature has come in, and he has changed the order of nature. And we had to ask the question, are we okay with that? And at first, when he says the things that he says to comfort her, it doesn't look very comforting. But in fact, it is when we realize that God is not aloof. He's not distant. This isn't happening outside of his plan. And so the way he comforts her is he reminds her, he doesn't necessarily say, okay, I'm going to take all that pain away. It went through to the birth of these children until one comes out and the other one's holding the kid, the other kid's ankle or heel. And, uh, and so he didn't take that away, but what he did to comfort her was say, this is not happening outside of my control. I'm God, I'm in control of this, and this is a part of my plan. And uh, so he, he revealed some things about himself and the way he chose to, to uh, comfort Rebecca, and the, what he revealed about us was that, again, he makes decisions that we won't always uh, agree with. So we gauge the hard truth that God uh, does that sometimes, and we either have the option to conform to his will or rebel against it and conform to our own will. And we talked about also having different beliefs within the same faith. And if you weren't here, uh, I encourage you to go online and listen. Uh, We have a blog also that has all the notes from all of our studies. Tonight, we're in verses 24 through 28 in Genesis 25. So will you all read them with me? We'll start in verse 22. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. 
So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Uh, this is our last Genesis study for a while. Um, next week, y'all have a week off to enjoy um, w- with your families. And then after that, in the month of June, our children's ministry is going to be doing um, some ministry, a ministry where we engage uh, families at the park. And so we'll be doing that every Wednesday uh, in the month of June. And, and Rhonda will give you more information on that. But tonight, I really wanted to end our Genesis study with a bang. I just wanted to, man, let's just, let's have like the clouds part, the, the waters held back, the voice of the Lord thundering down. Uh, something really spectacular. And God has ordained it so that we're ending with the most menial, almost ridiculous story about two brothers, one a mama's boy and one a hunter, delegating over red stew. And so that's how we're finishing strong for the semester. And so, but it's good because it's a really teachable moment in looking at how this seemingly insignificant scenario reveals some things about the heart. Verse 27. Look back at verse 27. It said, uh, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh, Here I want us to pay attention to the details shared about each of them. What we found last week was God said uh, clearly, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And the God of nature came in and changed the order of nature. And what we had to ask was, again, are we okay with this? What do we do here? Are we going to submit to what God reveals to us in his scriptures? Or are we going to do a circus act and try and explain it away? So here, what I want us to do is look at these details shared about each one. Esau is the older brother. He's a skillful hunter. He's a man of the field. Jacob was younger, a quiet man, dwelling in tents. And the thing that got me as I'm reading this is at this point, I think the guy that I would be prone to hang out with would be Esau. And I think Jacob's the guy I would have made fun of. We'll go around the other way. He's got it back there. Uh, Jacob may be the guy I would have made fun of. It's like Jacob's kind of a mama's boy. He stays in the tent. He helps cook the food. And Esau's the skillful hunter. And I'm sitting here looking at him saying, am I supposed to like hate Esau and, and love what Jacob's doing? Because if I just take it at face value, I'm, I'm going to be thinking, huh, um, th- this is the guy that I'd probably be more prone to hang out with. And interestingly, Isaac loved Esau too. But it, it's interesting what's shared here is that he loved Esau because he ate of his game. But then it says, Rebekah loved Jacob. So we see division here. We must understand as we read that both Rebekah and Isaac are mindful and aware of what God has ordained. Neither of them are are, uh, are fools to what God has said about, I put two nations in your womb. This is how I work. This is how I'm doing things. They're going to be against each other from the time that they're born. They're both aware of what God has ordained and the house is divided. Mommy and daddy are playing favorites. Mommy and daddy are playing favorites. It needs to be a reminder to us that this is not about Isaac. It's not about Rebecca. It's not about Jacob. It's not about Esau. What we're talking about here is God. Everyone is bad. Some are redeemed. You hear that. Don't try and pick a character and I want to be like them. Everyone's bad. Some are redeemed. If we look at the passage and try to find the distinctions between Jacob and Esau that made one superior over the other, we're only going to be further reminded that their standing has nothing to do with them and everything to do with God, the calling one. In Romans 9, he's referred to as the calling one, the one who calls. So what we're seeing here is a matter of trusting God knowing that no one else is worthy of that kind of trust. When we look at the, the story and we're like, well, what, what makes Jacob merit that grace? Well, nothing. Well, what makes Esau undeserving of that? Well, nothing any different than us all being undeserving. And I want us to see that we need to be putting our trust in the Lord and not people like, you know, a lot of times you hear the stories shared with children like, be like Noah. God looked down. He was the only one who still loved the Lord. no. He was like everyone else, and God redeemed him. God drew him out and used him. He cleaned him out as you would clean out a dirty vessel, and he used him the way he wanted to. And I want us to see this. It's important because of the number of people who quit church or badmouth church because of all the sinners. Like, we got to see this because as we're looking at this, we could be like, you know, Jacob was loved, but I'm not very impressed with the way he handled himself here. You know, I'm not real impressed with how Jacob kind of almost it looks like he swindled his brother a little bit. I don't know how I feel about that. And what I want us to see is that God is the one who's worthy of trust. And there's so many people who quit church or badmouth church because of all the sinners. 
people who fall away from her faith uh, because of something that someone else did. And there's this one main consistency throughout all the scriptures that man has fallen and man will fail you. And this is not a reason to run away from God. This is all the more reason to cling to Christ. I'll tell every one of you, if I haven't failed you yet, I will fail you. I promise. It's part of my fallen condition. But here what we're seeing is that's not a reason to turn from God. And a lot of people use that as a reason to turn from God. But it's really more the reason to cling to Christ and not put your hope into man. And the better question that I want to pose tonight, and this is where we're going to kind of get going in our study, the better question, rather than looking at how did Jacob have God's, what did Esau do? What, what, what's going on with Isaac and Rebekah? Why are they playing favorites? Rather than doing that and trying to figure out who's deserving and who's not, ask the question, who is worthy of grace? Who is worthy? If you're taking notes, that would be the question to ask. Who is worthy of grace in this scenario? Is Jacob worthy of grace? He got it. No, he's not. Is Esau worthy of grace? No. Mom and dad? No. So when you have differences with someone and there's division, the question to ask is, who's worthy of grace? And that levels the playing field. It's been said that the, the ground at the foot of the cross is very level. And as we stand there, it's level. And we see our condition and we see God. We know who God is. We know who, who we are. And we know the big difference between us and God. And so the question to ask is, who is worthy of grace? That's what I want us to look at because there's so much arguing over Jacob and Esau. And is it, is it hated or is it loved less? Or did God foresee in the future what, what Esau would do? And he just, he just hated that. Now, not really. There's so many things we can get wrapped up in here. And just ask the question. Just boil it down. Who's worthy of grace? Who? Who in this room is worthy of grace? So here's this picture of this seemingly insignificant, it's kind of like we have this very important family, these very important things that have happened. And then we have this side note that we jump into. One day, Jacob was cooking stew. It sounds like one of the books I read to my daughter. You know, it's just like, really? This is a really important story, a really important family. And then this just seemingly insignificant one day, Jacob was cooking stew. And... Uh, the, the picture here, this is not like, this is not like the seas parting. This is not like the voice of heaven booming down. This is two brothers arguing uh, with each other over red stew, just red stew. And, and it seems insignificant. But what I want to ask is what is revealed in this insignificant, silly, menial little scenario? What is revealed? That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. The birthright. What is actually happening when it's despised? Here we see that he, what does he sell his birthright for? <coughs> Stew. Thank you. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Stew. He sold his birthright for stew. What kind of stew? Red stew. Yeah, it's not like, well, it was a gourmet seasoned mix, mix, the best. It's red, just red stew. And he traded his birthright for it. So what I want to look at is the birthright and what happens when that birthright is despised. Uh, a few things about birthrights. Birthrights would go normally to the older child. That's the order of nature, as it would be. And so here God's saying, well, no, the older is going to serve the younger. But what's happening with that birthright is that if you have the birthright, uh, you're the one who is succeeded to the official authority of the family if the father is to pass away. And what that also means is that you would um, uh, function as the, the, the priest of the family, in a sense. See, families would gather, and as they would worship God, the head of the house would be the, the priest in that, and, and, he would, and he would have some responsibilities. And some of those responsibilities would be rituals, the offerings, the peace offering, the burn offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, all those things. And, and then there would also be a responsibility to distinguish between holy and unholy, and then there's a responsibility to distinguish between clean and unclean. There's a responsibility to teach God's statutes. There's a responsibility to act as judge when it's necessary. There's a responsibility to make sure the family is rightly obeying the Lord. I hope if you're a head of household in here, you're saying, hey, that's not very different than what I'm called to right now. Play judge when I need to play judge. Make sure that my family knows what the Lord wants from them and, and, and come alongside them and make sure they know the difference between something that is holy and something that's unholy, something that's right, something that's wrong. 
what they would be called to is very similar to what heads of household pretty much the same are called to now. And so this is the birthright. You function as, as kind of the priest in the family. There's a double portion of property given to the firstborn. Uh, he succeeded to the official authority of the father, and there's authority over the younger members of the household. So this is what Esau is despising. Think about all those details I just shared about the birthright in a family. What does this reveal about what Esau values if he is willing to despise that? What does this reveal about what he values and does not value? We're going to have to work at this a little bit, but I think we can do it. The here and the now. And what else? Him, himself in the here and now. What does he not value? The Lord? What else? Yeah, the inheritance. Who cares if I die? Yeah. I had a youth minister one time. I won't tell you his name. Uh, he told me that uh, he was giving counsel on things like credit and credit cards said, you might as well just rack it up because it all goes away when you die anyway. Um, that was not good in, uh, advice. And, uh, and that was a very carnal and earthly view of things, similar to what we're seeing here. Consider the impact that one would have for the glory of God in a family if you were in charge of the way that money and time were utilized. Think about that. With a birthright, what you have is this thing that's put in place where all of a sudden you're in charge of Things like what the family does and what we know about God and um, how we spend our money and, and what we're going to have the children focus on tonight after dinner. Think about the impact you could have, one could have, for the glory of God in a family if you were over those things. Consider how you could lead the family to God and clearly communicate God's ways. What we need to see here is that Esau is showing that he does not value these things. When he gives up his birthright, he's saying, all I really care about is the physical inheritance, and if I die, what good is it to me anyway? So there's this rash, not sober-minded, not self-controlled decision that's made that reveals, I don't care about the other things about my birthright. This is what I'm despising. He's saying um, he, he does not value this generation. He does not value future generations. One commentator makes a, a, uh, a statement that um, true wisdom would undergo a thousand deaths than renounce a birthright. There are those like uh, Naboth, I was reading about him in, in Scripture, that um, they would rather die than give up the inheritance that they have in the Lord. And so what we're seeing here is that Esau does not care about future generations. And, and it's a reminder to us, you're not just living in the here and now. You're living in a way where you're hoping that future generations hear the truth that you are so wholehearted about communicating to your family and in hopefully equipping your family to do a work of ministry in future generations. Like the, you, ha, you have a view towards not just yourself and not just your own riches, but your children and your children's children and so on. What's happening here is that Esau's decision, his decision should have been affected by his birthright. This is what we got to see, because this is really, really personal to us. Esau's decision that he made, I don't care. Give me the red stew. Take my birthright. I swear. What he's revealing is that his decision should have been affected by his birthright. His actions should have been informed and shaped by that blessing that comes through his father. There's a blessing in his life that comes through his father. And what he did is he made a decision and totally disregarded that. But who he is and the standing that he has should have informed his decision and the actions that he took. And so this is the way for those who are not guided by grace. We got to see this because the thing that we started off with is that question, who's worthy of grace? Well, no one. But some are guided by grace. And what we're seeing in the life of Esau is rather than trying to figure out why did he lose it or should he have had it, what, is Jacob better? We just got to see that this is what it is. This is the life of those who are not guided by grace. Interestingly, while Jacob's actions are certainly up for debate, Jacob, the other brother who was making the stew, kind of a mama's boy, stayed in the tents, didn't want to, you know, get a sunburn, didn't want to get calluses on his hands, that kind of thing. 
Uh, interestingly, you know, his, his motives have been questioned. There are many different opinions, and we're not hardly going to talk about it at all tonight. But one commentator said old Jacob was only finishing what he had started. He was pursuing his birthright. He was finishing what he had started. Remember when they came out of the womb, what was Jacob doing? Give me that birthright. And he didn't get it. So one commentator was just saying, well, he's just kind of finishing what he started. Why? Because the birthright is huge. The birthright is important. The birthright is significant. Jacob sees it as he's governed by grace, and Esau does not. Finishing what he started. This birthright is important. However, Esau's actions on a seemingly insignificant afternoon, driven by a desire for red stew, not just red. He just saw red stew. It wasn't, oh, the aroma is killing me. I must eat it. It was just red. You see this earthly, carnal, no depth whatsoever decision that's made. But he makes it very clear that his actions were not being governed by his birthright. Esau's actions were not being governed by his birthright. So we started off with that question, who's worthy of grace? And let us consider that no one excels another person in virtue or in obedience, but by the grace of God alone. And when deprived of the Spirit, we revel only in the things physical and earthly. So if you find yourself saying, am I reveling in spiritual, heavenly, true, eternal truths? Or am I just reveling and enjoying the things of the earth that are physical and carnal and whatever? Then you can, you can kind of assess, am I being governed by grace or just my will? There's a quote I want to share with you. It says, let us learn that they to whom God does not vouchsafe the grace of his spirit are carnal and brutal and are so addicted to this fading life that they think not of the spiritual kingdom of God. Remember what we talked about on Sunday? What is the kingdom of God? Ben's in here, so someone better get this right. Yeah, there you go. Sitting right next to him, too. You can get a high five. There you go. Yeah, the kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts of men. And what this commentator is saying is those who do not have the rule of God in their heart are carnal. They're brutal. There's nothing that keeps them from being completely overwhelmed and addicted to earthly things. And we see that in Esau here. The rule of God in the hearts of men. But them who God has undertaken to govern are not so far entangled in the snares of the flesh as to prevent them from being intent upon their high vocation. That's just a really fancy way of saying, but those who are governed by grace, those who have grace in their hearts, they will be steered clear of the carnal and the physical and the earthly. Those who are governed by grace will be able to embrace the high calling that God has on their life. Those who are governed by grace will have the ability to repent and follow Jesus. Yeah. And it's an insignificant moment. This thing about his heart is just, it's just open wide for us to see however many years later. And it was just this, insignificant moment while sitting over red stew. Esau is guilty of despising something of great significance to obtain something of little significance. What he's guilty of is despising something of huge significance to obtain something of little significance. But the aim here is not for us just to say, don't be like Esau. Rather, our aim here is be governed by grace. Assess your actions Assess your responses and make sure that you're not despising the great for that which is lacking. Look at what you do. Look at your motives. Make sure that you're not being governed by yourself, but you're being governed by grace. Don't do again what Esau has shown for us, where he is trading something extremely significant for something very insignificant, a bowl of red stew. And in fact, turn to Hebrews 12, that word appetite that Ben just used. We're going to touch on that here. Hebrews 12 this is an interesting connection uh, to Esau. And again, a seemingly insignificant situation where people were just getting fed. Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. As I'm reading these things, think about these are the actions that are done by a heart that is governed by grace. Think these are the actions here. 
when hard times and whatever else comes at you in the world, these are the actions that are representative of a heart that is governed by grace. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it, the blessing, with tears. The actions here are the actions of one governed by grace. But consider, how is what Esau has done being compared to sexual immorality and unholiness? This puzzled me. Because the first time I read that in Hebrews, I was like, I thought it was about red stew. How is he sexually immoral and unholy? I was so confused the first time I read that. I was like, did I miss something? Was that a metaphor? What happened in the story that messed me up? But we can answer that question very easily. And it's actually pretty cool what it reveals there in Hebrews 12 about what's happening here in Genesis 25. First question, what does it mean to be holy? Set apart? Pure? Yeah, I like all those words. Yeah, set apart, pure. Um, Like if this was all for something common and you take this and put it over here for something special, that would be a picture of holy. So holy, set apart. Esau is guilty of the same thing that the sexually immoral are guilty of. And we got to see this comparison because it helps us to better understand a heart that's not driven by grace. And it helps us to better assess if our hearts are being driven by grace or if there's something that needs to be repented of. Esau's guilty of the same thing that the sexually immoral are guilty of. And it's this, hear this, giving way to the solicitations of the appetite regardless of consequences. Y'all hear that? Esau and the sexually immoral have this thing in common that both of them gave way to the solicitations of the appetite while not caring about the consequences. Another way to say that is that, well, he's, he's referred to as profane. So what that means is that what's happened here for Esau as well as the sexually immoral, you're treating something sacred with irreverence. You're being guided by your appetite. And you're trading something sacred, you're treating something sacred for, uh, with huge irreverence. Esau had convinced himself that he was so hungry he could die. I just can't stand it anymore. And because he didn't have a view for the glory of God in future generations, he didn't care about that. Remember, all those things that he could have been a part of as the firstborn, leading the family in Bible studies, telling them what God desires, equipping this generation and this generation to rightly witness to the next generations so that family isn't misrepresented, but they're rightly represented as a family set apart for God. He didn't care about that. He didn't care about the future generations. He thought he could die, and he said, what good is this to me if I die? And for a bowl of red stew, he revealed that he despised his birthright. And when he was done, he just got up and walked away. There's no repentance there. That's written for a purpose. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. That's written that way so that we can see there was no struggle. There was no Esau going, birthright, red stew, I don't know. No, he just ate and he drank and he stood up and he walked away. Governed by the solicitations of his appetite. Interestingly, later on, and this is where I want us to see that, like, we've had a few instances in the last few years where we've, we've seen different um, ty- types of sexual immorality rear its ugly head, and it's heartbreaking. And here, later on, when, when Esau wants his blessing, he doesn't own up to anything. He doesn't own up to anything. One of the things we'll see later on in Genesis is he owns up to nothing while blaming everybody else. It's not my fault. It's everybody else's fault. And he doesn't own up to anything. And he, like many others who are guilty of surrendering to the solicitations of the appetite, sets himself up as the victim. It's so, I mean, the writing on the, I mean, it's so clear 
the connections between the way he has acted. And there's a reason that Hebrews 12 and God's breathed out word that is sufficient to equip us for every work that we may be competent and ready. There's a reason that that's connected. That we can see what it means to be irreverent with something that is set aside and holy. Now, this is, here's a transition, and I want us to see this whole birthright thing in the, through the right eyes. For those who are in Christ, there's a birthright that you have, and don't, we're not to be like Esau and despise that. And in fact, the birthright that you have in your life is supposed to govern every one of your decisions. Everything you do, you should do in light of your birthright. Those born again have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And you know who Christ is? Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That's what the Word says. Like supreme firstborn, alpha firstborn. And for those who are in Christ, they are heirs. And so what you have in Christ is this beautiful, abundant, complete blessing, blessed with every blessing in, in the heavenly places, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Your birthright is incredible if you're born again in Christ. What I think we need to see tonight is that it is in the seemingly insignificant situations that we're able to show how much we value God's call on our lives. It's in these really insignificant situations that you guys are in the midst of all day, every day, that we have this beautiful opportunity to show that you value your birthright. You value what it means to be an heir, one who is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. One who is in Christ, who is the firstborn of all creation. It's a big deal. And when those insignificant situations come up, it's important that we don't forget that that is a big deal. We need to see that that's an opportunity to show what we value. It's in the mundane details of a Tuesday afternoon when you're tired and you're hungry that you may have the best opportunity to show your family that you value your inheritance and you aim to be governed by the grace of God. It's not these huge, like, it's just this theme that we just keep getting nailed with on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings that the work that you're about is so incredibly inefficient and seemingly insignificant, and the things that you find yourself in day to day, you don't normally have someone come up and say, hi, I'm lost, and I'm a pagan, and I want you to tell me about Jesus. And then you get to tell them, and then they pray a prayer, and you celebrate, and then you go and tell all your friends, I had another one come up to me today. That's not how it works. You don't see people with t-shirts at Walmart that say, lost, need help. It's not how it works. It's these insignificant Tuesday afternoons when you are wore out and tired that you get to show your family and your loved ones and your friends and your coworkers how much you value what it means to be an heir, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be linked to the firstborn of all creation, what it means to have salvation. Think about these different things. These little insignificant situations like the way you talk to your children. It is easy to be completely unmindful of the way you talk to your children. But that is a perfect, little, insignificant situation where you can put God's glory on display. The way you talk to your coworkers, the lingo that you use, the words that you use, the way you respond to conflict, the way you spend your family time. One of the things we've had to do, that dang TV, it is like a parasite. It just, you try to get rid of it and it comes back and you, and you try to, to like act like it's not there and then it's on and you're like who turned the TV on I thought and then you get to, you're just you're watching it and you don't the TV I, I feel led to say this to y'all tonight how do you spend your family time one of the things we've had to do is say you know what from 5 to 9 let's not turn the TV on let's be about mm, God's work in each other's lives and not watching this completely worthless show that I'll forget about by 10 o'clock tonight from five to nine, that's what we've decided to do. Have we messed up? Yes. The other day I turned it on at like 7.30. I wasn't thinking. Yes, we messed up. But I want y'all to see that, man, if you're a man who has a job and you work from eight to five and you get home and your kids go to bed at eight or nine, you've got about three or four hours a day where you can really have some significant time with them. Don't spend it watching TV. It's uncomfortable. 
I know, thank you. I've never needed an amen as much as I needed one right there. Um, uh, another seemingly insignificant thing is your response when in despair. I, I was thinking about this in despair thing, and I, I wrestled with if I was going to ask this question, and I'm going to ask it against my better judgment. But think about the times in your life. <laughs> think about the times in your life when you most want to cuss. Golf? No, okay. You hit a slice. Yeah, or you want to most throw your clubs, yeah. Like those times in life where you're, you want to cuss. I, it seems like such a, like, because, you know, the room full of crowd, I never want to cuss. I don't believe that's correct and glorifying to the Lord. I, I believe that if we can be honest, like those times, those little times are like these insignificant times that I'm talking about. Someone cuts you off. You're more prone to drop a bomb right there than you are in a lot of other situations, and it's this totally insignificant time. But you have an opportunity to say, I'm not going to throw everything that's significant about who I am in Christ out the window to, to embrace being able to just bleh and say what you want to say. They're always insignificant moments. It's never a big blow up. It's always that time where someone looks at you wrong or says something wrong or uses a tone that you just didn't like. It's those really insignificant times. I know none of you want to ever cuss. The way you spend your money. The way you spend your money. That's... Every day, everyone in this room spends money. That makes it a seemingly insignificant thing because it happens every day, and you do it in many different ways. But just consider, are you putting this on display? What are you willing to give up? Anything? I find that I don't like giving up much. That's not rightly representative of one who's an heir in Christ, of the eternal blessings that go on for forever that nothing can separate me from. I want to hold on to that. Silly. Who you have over for dinner. Who you have over for dinner. What menial tasks you are willing to do. Like Eleazar, the quiet yet diligent servant. Are you willing to do those things? Or do you want to do something where people are going to name a building after you? Your created purpose is to put God's glory on display in every single aspect of your life. That's your created purpose. As one who is in Christ, there's no part of your life where you get to say, eh, this is mine. Every single aspect of your life, you have been made new in Christ, a new creation, putting off the old, putting on the new, and you are designed, you are created, you are formed, you are fitted for praise. God fits you for worship. Worship is responding to him and what he's doing. And what, the way you respond is by saying, God is great. His praise is continually on my lips because I'm so aware of how awesome it is to be an one who is part of the inheritance, one who has abundant blessings. Your created purpose is to put God's glory on his brain every single tiny, menial, insignificant aspect of your life. And when you do, God gets the glory because you know that that's not you. You know that it's a heart that's wicked that has now been changed and being made to be governed by grace, the grace of God. No one in here can say, hey, did you look at me? Look at what I did. That makes it very clear that that was not a heart governed by God's grace. Luke 6 says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the abundance that is in the heart is what will come out of a person's mouth. I fear that sometimes we have a similar misconception that Esau has. Go with me on this, it's weird, but whatever. I fear that sometimes we have this a similar misconception that Esau has, because Esau's misconception that he had was he felt that his birthright was only important in his life. Like, he felt that his birthright was only important if he was living. Sometimes we're guilty of viewing our salvation as only important in our death. It's kind of the flip thing of what Esau did. Sometimes we view our salvation as Thank goodness I have that for, I, I'll probably die. And when I do, I'm glad I have my salvation. So just as Esau was guilty of having a misconception that his inheritance was only important if he was alive, that he was wrong in that. We're wrong if we think that the only importance of our salvation has to do with when we die. Like, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do every day. It doesn't matter how I respond. It doesn't matter how I use my language. It doesn't matter how I use my time. It doesn't matter how I spend my money. It doesn't matter who I have over for dinner. None of that matters because I'm square with God. Our salvation has everything to do with the day, as if salvation were something designed by God to affect us in the future and not now. 
If governed by grace, we will see that our salvation has everything to do with today and tomorrow. I want you to consider a small sampling. Turn with me to Psalm 68. We're going to read three psalms. And I hope that these three psalms will encourage us to rightly put God's glory on display in every single little scenario that just seems so not important, like the red stew. Psalm 68, verses 19 through 20. We're going we're gonna to be turning in Psalms, so just stay there. Psalm 68, verses 19 through 20 says this, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. He does that, you know. He does that. The rule of God in the hearts of men. God does that. If you didn't hear Sunday's sermon, go li- leave right now and go listen to it. The greater great. The rule of God in the hearts of men. He does this who daily bears us up. Why do we need to be daily bared, born, whatever, up? Why? Stew every single day. The red stew comes in many different forms. And every day, you're going to have that point where you're like, oh, I'm so tired, I could die. I can't take this anymore. And you go after whatever form of the red stew is in front of you. He daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. His salvation is the direct reason that we're daily lifted from our depravity. Salvation is not something that's only important when we die later on, or however things go after we die. It's all confusing to everybody, but I got salvation, so I think I'm going to be okay then. You're okay now. And you're okay now to such a degree that you're designed to live differently and to put his glory on display in everything. And we're supposed to assess that. We're not supposed to just assume that it happens. We're supposed to be sober-minded and self-controlled, even in our prayers. How can my prayers be wrong? Well, if you're not controlled in your prayers and the content is junk, then that's not beneficial. Ben's going to talk about that Sunday. The reason we're daily lifted from our depravity, there's a daily impact. Turn over to Psalm 85. God is so good. Daily, you have daily, mercies are new every morning. 85.9, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. We fear him today because of salvation. That's an impact right now. It's our birthright that makes it possible for his glory to dwell in our land today. How does God's glory dwell in our land here, Hunt County land today? How does that work? Because we're being governed by grace and thereby putting the glory of God on display for all to see. Think of yourself as a display case. What are you showing everyone? Like if everyone's a display case, what do do people see? Do they see like track medals or, or work medals? Or do they see God's glory put on display? When God looks down, does he see a reflection of the culture back to him? Or does the culture see a reflection of God back to to it? Daily. We fear him today and in our hearts that are governed by grace, we're able to live in such a way where we put his glory on display in everything that we do. Psalm 96, 2. A few pages over. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation day to day. It's not something that only has to deal with later when we die. It affects every aspect of your day now. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So a heart governed by grace results in a mouth that speaks of salvation every day. Like, let's not talk in vague terms. When's the last time you spoke of salvation? When's the last time you thanked God for salvation? That's something I've been hugely convicted about. We should thank him daily for our salvation. We can make this long list. I did this thing with my family this week where during the day we just made a point to make a list of things we're thankful for and at night we would share it. And I almost missed salvation. I wanted to say family, friends, house, food, clothing, shelter, church, all these things that are very important. I almost missed salvation. Is there anything to be more thankful for? 
a relationship with the living God. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. A heart governed by grace results in a mouth that speaks of salvation every day. So if every day is filled with business, you speak of salvation in your business. If every day is filled with being at home with your children, you speak of salvation at home with your children. If you have a day that's filled with crunching numbers, somehow you speak of salvation while you're crunching numbers. I don't know how to do that. But God's equipped your heart too. So you may say, you may say, this is my aim. I'm going to aim to do that. I'm going to aim to daily be mindful of my salvation so I don't do what Esau did. You may say, that's my aim, but what if I mess up? What if I give way to my appetite? And this is some of the best news here. This is not a right for you to go sin and just rely on grace to rescue you again. That's not what grace does. Grace governs the heart. It doesn't only rescue the stupid. It governs everything you do. But sometimes we're stupid because we're fallen, and we give way to that appetite that says, oh, look at that red stew. That's cool. All right, I'm going I'm to partake of that red stew in this way today because I'm weak. And if those times happen, and this is our big monumental conclusion to our Wednesday night study from this insignificant, seemingly insignificant story, there's our big monumental finish to our Wednesday night for the semester. Repent and follow Jesus. Is that simple enough? Repent and follow Jesus. That's not something you only hope your kids do. That's something you should hope to be doing daily. You have sin in your life? Repent and follow Jesus. Why is this significant? We did not see this, and in fact, we never saw this in Esau. That's it. it was an important part of the story that was included at the end, remember? He ate, he got up, he walked away. He could have repented, right? But he didn't. His heart was not governed by grace. Repent, follow Jesus, and always aim to be governed by the grace of God so that you glorify God in every aspect of your lives. Let every single decision, every single one of them, there's no way to teach this where it's like, oh, I'm pretty sure they got that. Now they're going to leave here and go let every single decision be governed by their birthright. That's not how it works. But I'm urging you, I believe that God does this in hearts. I believe the kingdom, is God, the kingdom of God is real. And I believe that it's this thing where he governs the hearts of people. He rules the hearts of people. And so the encouragement is repent, follow Jesus, and let every single decision be affected by your birthright. For some of us, this is just like a step one, like, okay, I've never been mindful of any decision ever being governed by a birthright. Any decision ever being governed by the fact that there's an inheritance and that inheritance changes the way I should make decisions. That was the deal with Esau. He had an inheritance. His decision should have been affected by that, but it wasn't. His heart was not being governed by grace. So the encouragement, the big finale for Wednesday night study is repent and follow Jesus. Simple as that. I think one thing I'd like to uh, throw in, man, that was rich, rich study. One thing I would like to throw in is that that Hebrews passage that we read, chapter 12, for you know that afterward, this speaking of Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That sounds a lot like someone else that we've considered in these last, in this last six months to a year. Does anybody, does that sound familiar? Judas. Judas brought his money to the Sadducees, Pharisees, threw it out. Hey, man. Let's undo this whole thing that it's in motion. And then he went and hung himself. But he didn't go Godward. You know, the difference is Peter, the difference between Peter and Judas is God's work in the heart of Peter. And it's all God. I mean, that, that's the difference. The ground is really level. I mean, that's what I hope you see tonight is not, man, that Esau, he sure was a knucklehead. It's that we're all knuckleheads. And but for God's grace, he draws and redeems and rescues some. And really, if we believe our Bibles, which, I mean, I, I know we do, but I say that sometimes kind of reinforcing that it's our Bibles that tell us that it's the foolish things of the world that God has chosen to confound the wise. If anybody says, hey, man, I, I was talking with somebody yesterday that said sometimes we get election confused with elitism. The election, if anything, ought to grow you downward. Like, dude, I have a greater, more accurate view of who I am relative to God 
and relative to everyone else. And I'm going, <laughs> I think he could have done a better job than me <laughs> or David, murderer slash adulterer, or Ephraim. He has this way about choosing the unlikely things, if anything, the least likely. You know the story of Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh, where Jacob is going to give the birthright, and he goes, whoop, does a switcheroo and put his right, right hand on Ephraim, the younger. That sounds like God taking the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And Jacob, when you, or, yeah, Jacob, when you really take a good look at Jacob, you realize he's, he's a bonehead too. Can I close this tonight? Is that okay? Lord, thank you so much for this rich time we've had together in the Word on these Wednesday nights. We uh, so treasure um, our Bibles because they reveal who you are and what you're doing and what you've done. Lord, they also give us some insight into what you have yet to do. And uh, Lord, I pray with Scott and uh, with uh, the elders and uh, with the teachers and the shepherds, Lord, I pray on behalf of this people that we'll be a people that do not despise the amazing birthright of spiritual blessings that we already have in heavenly places. Lord, I pray that it's something that, that tempers uh, how we speak, uh, how we spend, how we eat, how we uh, engage each other, uh, just every area that it invades, even the, and maybe even especially the seemingly insignificant Tuesdays or Saturdays or um, even the seemingly insignificant spaces of our cubicles, our warehouses, our backyards, our dens and dining rooms and living rooms and kitchens. Lord, we just pray for people um, that are attentive and we recognize when we even consider that Esau sought a uh, repentance and um, Judas sought to uh, reconcile or figure out how to undo what he had done that ultimately you've got to work this in our hearts if it's to be genuine. And Lord, I ask for that on behalf of this people. I ask for it in myself and our family and in this people. Just a true engagement of a birthright that's, that, that's worth uh, directing our lives and uh, tempering our decisions. Lord, we are so thankful that uh, you are a good God, that you hear our prayers, and we can trust that we can pray this in the name of Jesus because it's in keeping with who he is and uh, what he's done and his character. So we ask it boldly. We beg for it. And uh, we thank you for being such a great God that hears our prayers. Uh, we love you, Lord. And uh, we give you the rest of this evening for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.